Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect Magazine, and I'm joined today by Dominic Grieve, former Conservative Attorney General, and Sam Friedman, a political writer who writes a regular column for Prospect. Today, we're going to be discussing the hopefuls who are still vying for the position of Conservative Party leader. They are, as we speak this morning, Penny Mordant, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak and Kemi Badnoch. And we will also be looking at the bigger question about what this race means for the future of conservatism and the country. And just a note to say that we are recording this on Tuesday morning. Things are still moving quite fast. So by the time that you're listening to this, one of those hopefuls will have been booted out of the race. So... First of all, if I could come to you, Sam, could you just give us an outline of where we are this morning? What happened with the vote last night? Okay, well, where we are now is that um, Rishi Sunak has a fairly commanding lead. He got 115 votes last night, so he's almost almost definitely through and should get over the line today. 120 are the number of votes you definitely need to be in the final two. So he's very close and will be in, the, in that final two. So the race is really for the set, that second place. And then those two are then put to the membership. Um, Penny Mordant stayed ahead of the other of the others. She had 82 votes, but she did drop by one vote. So she didn't make any gains. Liz Truss got to 71 votes. She got seven votes, which is probably fewer than she would have expected, given the last person to drop out was Suella Braverman, who was more would be more naturally aligned to her position. And then Kemi Badenoch had 58 votes and is probably too far away from Liz Truss to catch up, but it's still possible that she could catch up with Liz Truss. So we're going to see one of the one of those four knocked out today, as you say. It's probably Badenoch, although it's possible she could get ahead of Truss, but I think unlikely. Uh, and then tomorrow we will have the sort of the big moment when we get the last two confirmed. And it really is too close to call at the moment. I don't think you could, I don't think anyone who, can, who confidently says it's going to be Truss or Mordant is being honest because no one really knows. It's very close between those two and it, it could go the way. Yeah, because so after Tom Tugendhat 
got knocked out yesterday, there's obviously a bit of a reshuffle of votes going on. And it seems as though, it sounds as though, a certain proportion of Tugan Hat's votes will go to Morden, but we don't know how many, we don't know kind of the tactics going on behind the scenes. One of the interesting things about this contest has been the vote block, the people who vote for one candidate are not moving as a block to another candidate. There's so much ideological kind of messiness and uncertainty around it all that it's not neat like that. You can't say, well, this candidate's right wing and this candidate's left wing. And so you, naturally you'd expect Tugan Hat supporters to be more aligned to Mordant and maybe Sunak, but... I don't think they'll all travel together, so they will split out into some format. But if Mordant can get about 20 or 25 ahead of Trust today, then that makes it pretty hard, I think, for Trust to catch up. OK, so today, today's results will be, will be kind of potentially quite, uh, quite telling. Um, Dominic, if I could come to you, at this, at this point in the race, which of the candidates would you really like to, you know, see in that second spot and who were you who were you really backing to become leader who are you interested to see take over the leadership of the party I, i'm no longer a member of the party uh, i think i might be readmitted if i were to apply but i always said i would not seek to rejoin until johnson was gone and johnson is not gone he won't be gone until the 5th of september and even if i rejoin now it would be too late to get a vote amongst for the a member's vote So I don't have a view about individuals. I have some very strong views about what the party needs. And I think that does realistically put some pointers in particular directions. The party has really created nothing but chaos for itself over the last three years. It's had a populist prime minister who's pursued a series of buzzwords and hasn't, in fact, delivered. Now, admittedly, And in fairness to him, there's been COVID. But even with that, there is still a sense of a complete loss of direction. And the problem the Conservative Party's now got is that the membership have picked up that there's no direction. And so they're falling back on their comfort zones. And their comfort zones is the idea that 40 years ago, when Margaret Thatcher came into office, she pursued certain policies which undoubtedly revived the country and are still relevant. Now, they are relevant, but they've been completely distorted in the mind of the membership. She believed in sound government finance long before she believed in cutting taxes. She wanted to cut taxes, but the first thing she wanted to do was to create sound, quiet governance. And she set about doing that pretty ruthlessly and very effectively and then delivered the benefits in tax cuts. And yet the membership are pressing and the candidates feel obliged to respond, with the exception of Rishi Sunak, by making a whole series of promises of immediate tax cuts, which I have to say I think is going to make the situation even worse as we head into our current economic crisis which is very profound and is actually linked to a much wider international crisis, which endangers our national security. So we do need a safe pair of hands doing this job. And it's right that from that point of view, Rishi Sunak comes across as infinitely more experienced than the others. But that's not to say that the others are incapable of doing this. Although what troubles me is that for the present, and with, I think, the exception of Kemi Badenoch, who's been quite opaque on this, both Penny Mordaunt and Liz Truss have tended to vie with each other as to who can come across as the most post-Thatcherite prime minister. Um, And 
I worry that if that is what they're going to need in order to win, they are going to saddle themselves at the very outset of their prime ministerships with a burden which they are not going to be able to shift and indeed will immediately undermine the confidence of the public who will say, well, you elected us on this basis. But in fact, that's not how you're actually... So I do worry that Johnson's departure has exposed both ideological rifts in the party has shown that the ideological glue which held the party together historically, despite the differences, is now, I think, very thin indeed, because Johnson has trashed the traditional institutions of the British state serially in taking us out of the EU, but also actually in his behaviour since. Whereas historically, it was the thing which brought Conservatives together, even if, for example, they disagreed on economic policy. Now, if the Conservative Party is going to survive and do good, that has got to be healed. And I think all the candidates have the capacity to do that. But it's not at all clear to me from what some of them have said so far that they have any understanding of just how profound the problem now is. And actually, I have to say, that also applies to Rishi to an extent, who simply presented himself on an economic model and is, of course, saddled with the fact that he, and indeed the other candidates, put up with Johnson for far too long. Mm. I mean, it's certainly a, a, a significant challenge of leadership for whoever comes next to kind of rebuild that idea of, of what the Conservative Party is and, and what it, you know, what kind of government it wants to to run. One of the very interesting figures in this race has been Penny Mordaunt, who had potentially a bit more distance from that, the Johnson kind of legacy, which perhaps benefited her in the beginning. But we've seen that trajectory kind of dip over the course of the race. I mean, Sam, you've sort of uh, written a bit about about Penny Mordaunt's uh, course in this contest. Um, she was successful, but you know Sunak's lead over her uh, now has actually increased uh, last night. So, I mean, why do you think she got off to such a strong start and then has perhaps you know um, failed to increase the momentum that it it looked like she might have? I think she's got off to a strong start because she wasn't associated with the Johnson administration as much as most of the other candidates, though she has been a minister, uh, and that helped her give her a distance and give the sort of sense of being different and a fresh start. She's also very assiduously worked associations and the membership and other MPs for a long time. This is not a, a recent ambition of hers. She's been essentially running for the leadership for a while. So I wasn't surprised that even though she's not potentially as well known as some of the other candidates that she she did get off to a good start. But I think the fact, the problem she now has is the same thing that got her off to a good start, which is that she's trying to be everything to everybody. You know, this is someone who was a member, I think she possibly still is a member of the ERG, who took one of the strongest stances against Brexit and, and is, is in that sense on the right of the party, but is also more socially liberal and trying to appeal to those sort of more one nation side of the party. She's sort of trying to appeal to everyone, which means she's also annoyed everybody, or at least on some level. And I think that sort of lack of ideological consistency is now starting to come through and worry people. And they're thinking, is this someone who can actually present a coherent platform as as prime minister? Um, and it's not really clear that, that she can. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of also been interesting, particularly for Mordaunt, but for all of the candidates, is that given their close associations with the existing government, they're sort of looking for an enemy elsewhere to, 
spar off to, you know, have some form of kind of opposition so that they don't have to acknowledge the limitations, you know, that they've just been in. Could you kind of expand a bit more on what you sort of your your view on on that creation of the enemy that they're trying? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely right. They're all struggling to run against um, essentially problems created by their own government. And they can't really acknowledge that as the ones who've been in government, even less so than the ones who haven't. And we're seeing that in a number of different ways. There's been quite a lot of criticism of the Bank of England because that's sort of independent of government. So that's something that can be criticised without directly accusing your colleagues of making mistakes. We've seen a lot of stuff about social justice warriors and wokeness and all of that because it's an easy target that tickles the tummy of the membership. We've seen still this sort of obsessive attacking of the EU, even though we've left the EU and the Northern Ireland Protocol is an important piece of legislation, but... um, certainly isn't isn't the cause of most of our problems at the moment. So, yeah, there's this sort of search for an external enemy. We saw it during the rail strike, this sort of desperate desire to go back to the 70s and 80s and have a sort of uh, the enemy within all over again. But but realistically, we're, you know, 12 years of government. It's very hard to blame anyone else for the challenges. So uh, whoever comes in is going to be in a difficult position where if they want to sort of present a new approach, how do you do that without saying, well, everything we've been doing for a very long time has been wrong? Yeah. And I mean, Dominic, arguably, that's been a very difficult challenge for Sunak because of his key role in government. But he has got a strong lead now. And as Sam said at the outset, it looks like he's, you know, set to to be in the last two. So how has he managed to to build that support base and, um, you know, despite his his key role in government? I think because actually in government, he's come across as significantly unideological. Whereas other government ministers, including Truss and there are others, have been cheerleaders of this sort of right-wing, angry brand of conservatism, throughout his time as Chancellor, it seems to me that he's largely just got on with the job of being Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, Perceived to be a moderating force on Johnson and perceived to have an understanding and grip of what the public finances are all about, even if that's made him unpopular. Now, there have been some bad moments. Uh, His uh, budget was a bad moment uh, because it didn't appear to be getting to grips with some of the problems. And, of course, he's had on a personal level some bad moments because... um, of the whole story of, his, of, the, of the green card and the non-dom status of his wife. But when all that is stripped away, one still gets the impression of a very pleasant, competent, and perhaps because he doesn't go in for the ideology, rather traditional conservative. I thought William Hague's article saying that when the, the, the farmers of North Yorkshire and Richmond constituency had gone in the selection process thinking they would end up with a military man uh, or a farmer and came out with Rishi. They were quite surprised, but I think they did so because they thought, oh, this man understands us and we understand him. Now, as I think any new leader of the Conservative Party, if it isn't to continue on its current path to huge damage and destruction is going to have to take it in a significantly new direction, then the way Rishi has conducted himself over the last few years suggests to me that he understands those issues and may well have the capacity to do it. 
The anxiety, I think, with some of the other candidates is that they seem to be, Liz particularly, Penny Mordaunt is rather different, but with Liz Truss seems to be so rooted to both the ideology of of a sort of hard-right conservatism, coupled with the fact that despite the fact she was a Remainer in the referendum, and indeed a very articulate Remainer, and for very sound conservative reasons, but she seems to have abandoned all that and embraced Johnsonism. So how is she going to move away from that? I think it's going to be harder for her, not impossible, but I think it's going to be harder for her to carry out that transition. Now, when you then turn to the other two, Penny Mordaunt and, and Kemi, I think it is very different. They are much less involved in the way that the Johnson administration has run. I think the point that Sam's making, it's just much harder to know what they really do think, and they don't have the track record. And I have to admit, having left Parliament in 2019, I haven't really seen them at the point where they have started to go properly public. Uh, Penny Mordaunt, perhaps, yes, there was an overlap, but certainly with Kemi Badenoch, she's a bit of an unknown quantity for me, so I don't think I'm entitled to comment. I've enjoyed listening to her and her straightforwardness. For that matter, Penny Mordaunt has qualities as well. I guess, um, you know, through this whole contest, there's been a few different issues that we've heard the candidates speak on. Um, and, you know, tax has been, a, has been a key one. And you mentioned as well, Sam, earlier, the kind of discussion about the Bank of England that came up, which is linked to in inflation. And then also the sort of question of, of self-ID for transgender people that's been uh, something that Penny Morden has been you know, asked to speak on regularly. But could, could you, Sam, could you give us a run through of kind of what you think the key policy issues are that have cut through in this debate and, you know, what that will mean in the next and final kind of stages of, of this contest? Yeah, I mean, it's been a very strange policy debate. It's been in sort of almost entirely divorced from the reality of what most people care about at the moment, what most voters care about anyway at the moment, which is predominantly cost of living in the National Health Service, which is in real trouble. Uh, but that, that's got relatively little attention. The only policy we've really heard on cost of living is fuel tax cuts, which would have a marginal effect, but won't really help the people who need it, need it the most. What we have seen of is a lot of tax cuts Tax of wars over tax cuts, with the exception of Sunak, who has, who has, who has sort of said he doesn't think it's the right time to, ta- to cut taxes now, though he wants to do so in the future. The main ones they focus on have been corporation tax, where where Sunak has proposed a sort of increase twenty five percent over the next few years, and the national insurance increase, which which is also Sunak. So I think part of it is b- being able to sort of attack him for the tax rises he's put in place. That that's sort of part of the reason it's become such a such a focus. Uh, and then, and then on the sort of trans side, the the, the row sort of come about because because Penny Mordaunt was a, was a was an equalities minister and is seen by many of those who are very worried about um, women's rights that she was too sort of soft on the issue and you know said at the dispatch box trans women are women which is sort of heretical for for them and and then she I don't think she reacted very well to it rather than sort of say this shouldn't be the main issue we're talking about in this election it's not what really matters to voters she tried she's tried to completely reverse her position which didn't necessarily look particularly high integrity uh, so she has got herself into a bit of a mess on it but again I mean the, these these two issues have probably been the most yeah. the most important in the debate so far but but as I say they just just completely detached from from when you look at the things that people care about most in polling. Um, They're not Dominic, near the what, what do you think? Do you think that these are the issues people in the, in this race should be focusing on? And if not, you know, what what should be what should be the focus of their of their case? But the problem is this, isn't it? 
this is a very bizarre election. Uh, initially, it's being decided by parliamentarians. Sam was talking about this. Um, and it's you know, the, the parliamentary electorate is very sophisticated and quite naughty. But actually, also, it's not it crosses boundaries. It's not surprising, just picking up Sam's point, that blocks, you know, Tugendhat's votes will not go entirely to one person. It's never like that. I, re I remember this when I was back in when it was David Davis and David Cameron and, and David Davis and, and, and um, uh, Ian Duncan Smith and, uh, and Ken Clark when I supported David Davis in 2001. And when when his vote went, when he fell out, um, the vote went in all directions. Um, they don't necessarily follow the ideology. So firstly, the candidates are having to appeal to the parliamentary electorate to get in those last two. Sunak is all clearly safe and is there. So it's the question about this intense competition, which is slightly unusual, between these three other candidates. And, of course, one's got to bear in mind that the parliamentarians may well have stronger views about who they don't want in the last two than who they do want in the last two. So uh, yeah, that's, that's quite subtle. And then beyond that... To get elected and become leader, you've got to appeal to 150, 60. I don't know how what the membership of the Conservative Party now is. I think it's well under 200,000. I know it was, that's been around 200, but I think it's come down. And they are not representative of the people who vote Conservative at general elections. They're simply not. They're very good people, but they have views which are very dissimilar. Some of them are similar, they all, but, but they have... They have an attention to issues which, frankly, don't matter to the wider electorate one little bit. So hence all this obsessing over trans rights or whether Penny Mordaunt has met the chairman of the Muslim Council of Britain when she shouldn't have done. I mean, I don't think an average member of the electorate is going to conservative voting is going to be very troubled by this at all. But clearly somebody thinks it's damaging to Penny to bring that up. So they have quite a difficult task. If they really say what they think, then they risk either forfeiting the support of their parliamentary colleagues at this stage, or more significantly, if they get into the last two, they will hand it on a plate to their opponent who doesn't do that. And that's really one of the big problems of this system. I have to say, I very much regret that William Hague saddled the Conservative Party with giving the membership the right to determine the leader. I think it's proved to be an enormous mistake and it distorts the debate and ends up with the serious risk that you put into number 10 Downing Street somebody who is in fact incapable of escaping the sort of distant grip of the membership and doing what's necessary to ensure a Conservative majority at a general election, which is what the membership actually want. Sam, it looks like you may also have have some thoughts on that issue. What do you what do you think about about that effect of giving the membership the the vote? I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's clearly distorting what candidates are saying in this in this election and dragging them all to the right. Did so last time. Did so the time before. And in my view, at very least, the membership should only get a say when the party is in opposition. If you're in government and you're choosing the prime minister, it should be members of parliament who've been elected and are representing all of us who make that decision as to who the prime minister is. It shouldn't be 150,000 
people who are completely unrepresentative of not just the country, but the conservative voting part of the country. Um, because, it, you know, we are not hearing about the issues that, that even most conservative voters, let alone the wider public, care One of about. the things that's sort of um, been discussed right. in the recent days of this contest is is the, the what impact this will have on the wider public's view of kind of how we choose our, our prime minister and... Johnson's among his parting words the idea that he had a mandate directly from the people sort of spoke to a more presidential system which is not what we have in the UK and then there's this discussion now about people in the wider public feeling slightly uncomfortable with with the membership choosing choosing the prime minister it seems as though this is that system is under more scrutiny now than it has been at at any point What, what do you think Dominic well I agree uh, and I think it, the debates on Friday and Sunday were not very edifying. From the point of view of somebody who's been in the party for many years, I can't remember people attacking each other with quite so much vitriol as seemed to be present. And yet they felt obliged to do it. Yet these are people who, on the face of it, are going to have to be working together and probably in the same cabinet room together now. That may be a legacy of Johnsonism, because as I say, he has created chaos. He's broken the, the bonds of solidarity which tied the party together in its widest sense. But the public can't, I think, have been very impressed with this. Indeed, you only have to look at the commentary to see that most people think this is quite extraordinary. And that's unfortunate, because it in part conceals that these are people, all of them, with true capacities. And I have no doubt a desire to serve the public. That's why they are in politics. So I don't think it creates a good image. And I agree. I think it's very odd that we should have a situation. The prime minister is not a president. And indeed, Johnson's attempts to transform himself into one is one of the reasons why we've ended up where we are and why he's been so damaging to our constitutional settlement. But I agree. I think that the idea that you hand to 110 or 150 or 160,000 people the choice of the next prime minister is very odd. And I think it should be the parliamentarians who make this decision because they're the ones who have to supply him with the parliamentary majority. And I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it may well be at the end of this process that it's pretty clear that Rishi Sunak enjoys something close to majority support from the parliamentary party. I don't think it'll quite get to that, So, which is perhaps fortunate in the circumstances. If then he is defeated in the run to the membership because the person who comes second is much more appealing to the membership than he is, then that's not a very good place to start a new premiership in the House of Commons with the... Now, can be overcome... But it's not a very happy situation. And just, I just wanted to come back as well to the point Sam was making about the sort of the policy issues that they're, you know, as a result of this system, perhaps are not being discussed. Obviously, this morning we've just had the hottest night in the UK on record. I'm sitting in the prospect offices, which are at the top of a building where it's, I'll be honest, it's pretty pretty warm up here. So climate change could be a key issue at the beginning of the contest. The candidates were keeping quite quiet on it, although we've on climate change and net zero pledges, although they have since, you know, promised to support government policies there, partly as a result, I think, of the support for those policies within the parliamentary Conservative Party and also the wider country. But 
Sam, I mean, what do you think, what do the remaining candidates in this contest mean for climate action? You know, are any of them kind of offering the bold action that arguably on a day like today, you can see that we're going to need in this country? What's the state of play there? Um, well, we'll get it, it. It has come up a bit during the campaign. Um, most of the candidates, and I think the candidates likely to win, have committed to the net zero pledge. Badnock hasn't, um, and has gone a bit back and forth on what exactly she she is committing to, and has sort of talked about maybe letting the target slip to twenty sixty or twenty seventy, which is which is depressing to hear. Uh, one of the interesting things that's, that's happened sort of outside of the race is that yesterday a court ruled that the government's net zero plan isn't detailed enough. And that they would have to, in order to meet, because it is in legislation, this target, in order to meet their commitments under the legislation, they, they would have to set out in more detail how they propose to meet net zero. So that is going to be something the new prime minister has to do in their first of six months in office and will give us a good sense of how seriously they take the issue and whether they're prepared to commit additional resources. But one of the reasons why it's so, why the judge ruled that is because when Sunak was in the Treasury, he refused to cough up the sort of necessary funds to make it as detailed as other parts of government wanted it to be. So my sense is that if he ends up as Prime Minister, he's not going to want to, to change his mind from when he was Chancellor. What, what does this race give you? What feelings do you have about the outcome for the leadership and action on climate change? Will the Conservative Party really be a party to lead on that key issue? I think the part, the parliamentary party is, in my experience, unless the arrival of the new Red Wall MPs has made a significant change, entirely persuaded about the severity of climate change. I, I really, I've never, there were one or two colleagues who were not, but they were really in a tiny minority. So I've never had any concerns that the government takes climate change seriously, and I even under Johnson, my feeling was that they did. Of course, like any government, and this applies to if we got a Labour government as well, has to balance that against anxieties about the economic condition of the country and not wanting to endanger it. So there's always a bit of slipping round the edges. Now, I have to say that with the membership of the Conservative rank and file, there are probably more people who think that climate change is exaggerated and is being used as an excuse to damage the UK economy, which is probably why they have tended to be fairly quiet on this subject. But I wouldn't be too concerned about this. My feeling is that whoever gets the leadership and becomes prime minister knows very well that this is an absolutely central issue, that the government cannot ignore it, and that it's got to work both domestically and internationally to tackle it. The argument you always get from rank and file membership is, well, there's no point in our doing anything because the main problems come from places like India and China and our contribution to this is insignificant. And all we're doing is damaging our economy by introducing uh, new rules and regulations to try to restrict emissions. But it's not, in my experience, how leading players of any kind within the party have seen this. So on that note, uh, for once, I'm fairly confident and reassured that this is not going to be parked. I mean, it's arguably something that would be up to the next leadership to dispel those kind of fears and really make a case for the 
economic benefits of, of yeah. you know, ambitious climate action now. So Of course it will. And if they haven't talked about it properly during the, the campaign, well, they're going to have to explain it to the membership afterwards. And as I say, that is the central problem of this entire campaign, that one has the distinct sense that they are playing to an audience which is not which they know very well is not the audience which ultimately matters. That's a bit of a problem. Well, we're, we're almost ready to round up anyway. So I guess just a parting word from both of you. There's still a lot to kind of shift throughout the course of this week. As we say, votes will be moving backwards and forwards between the candidates as the party chooses who they want and also who they do not want to progress to the final two. Could I have a word from both of you just on how you expect the rest of the week to go? Who is going to get that second place slot behind Rishi Sunak? Maybe, if we, Dominic, we could start with you. Well, if I knew, I would be a real pundit soothsayer and I would be running around to the betting shop to put my bet. I haven't a clue. It seems to me that there is, there are a number of trends you can pick out. Liz Truss is not doing as well as she would have expected and was hoping. Uh, She should really, because of her record and everything else, be the leading second candidate. And that the fact that that hasn't happened suggests that the Parliamentary Party actually have some quite serious doubts about her. Um, Penny Mordaunt surged, but we've seen this before. It seems now to have flatlined. And Kemi Badenoch seems to be in the process of taking over the Penny Mordaunt slot. Now, I come back to my point earlier that I'm afraid the Conservative parliamentarians will, you know, it is as much who do I do, do I not want as who I want. So I suspect there's going to be quite a lot of tactical voting in the next round uh, to see whether the person who can be positioned in third place um, has the to see to see whether in fact you'll get you can engineer it so that the second candidate uh, is not the one who is ahead at the moment. That's that's bluntly what I think they're likely to be doing. I think everybody will just assume that Rishi Sunak is going to go through. I do think this idea that you know some of Sunak's supporters will be told to go and vote for another it, candidate. Ah, it's a very dangerous. People keep on talking about this. I don't believe it will happen. And Sam, what about you? <clears throat> I, I just, I absolutely don't think it's possible to tell who's going to get the second spot. There's no way of knowing the minds of these MPs. And, and, and if you look at them on paper, it could, it really could end up um, any, any way. Um, so one thing that's happened while we've been talking is that um, Boris Johnson has removed the whip from Tobias Elwood for not supporting the government last night in the confidence vote. And he is a Penny Mordaunt backer. So now if Trust beats Mordaunt by one vote, there's going to be a hell of a row about that. Um, so that will be that's another sort of element of uh, intrigue and entertainment about the whole thing. Um, the, the final point I would leave with is, uh, is, is you know, Sunak is going to get to the last two. I, I personally think he'll probably win. Um, although I don't think that's definite by any stretch. Um, and if he does, I think the dynamic of the next sort of six months when we were in from September is going to be him trying to uh, deal with a sort of rebellion on his backbenches from all the people who supported Boris. I think it's going to be very, very hard for him to get a stable government um, when there's such hostility to him because he's seen as the one who brought Boris down fairly or unfairly. And I think that's that that's going to become the kind of palace intrigue narrative if he does become prime minister 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So the you know the the uh, repercussions from this contest will no doubt continue uh, within the party and across the country uh, over the course of the autumn. I think that's all we have time for today. So I would just say thank you so much to Sam uh, and to Dominic for joining us uh, and to you for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then escape the echo chamber by grabbing a copy of our latest issue of Prospect Magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. The double summer issue of Prospect hits shelves this week. Inside, you can read Sam's regular column as well as writing from Raphael Baer, Sheila Hancock, Malcolm Rifkind and many more. So that's all. Goodbye, stay safe and join us in a week for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.